0: in understanding nutrition and metabolism as a switch on or off thing because for example like inflammation like you just said people are like oh um all these chronic diseases have high inflammation um in the bodies therefore inflammation is bad so we need to like shut inflammation down no inflammation is actually a reaction to an infection you need right. your inflammation body's doing
1: in, it to in protect order you.
0: correct mm-hmm. but when your body is out of balance that's when chronic inflammation occurs mm. and that's when you see you know the higher inflammation or higher biomarkers for inflammation in chronic diseases so you need to think about it that way it's not something is associated with disease it's automatically bad it is actually a mechanism of a coping mechanism of your body trying to deal with some form of imbalance that you have caused your body throughout the years let's link up with Krista on the fix She's a wellness coach with a focus on mental well-being and physical strength.
1: Coming down in three, two, Hey, hey, Fix listeners, welcome to episode 76 of The Fix Podcast. I'm your host, Krista Huber, and we have an amazing guest lined up for you today. That is Dr. Lat Mansoor, who has quite an impressive set of credentials, and I just know you guys are gonna love this one because he's a scientist who has such an amazing ability to take complex information and break it down. I learned a lot, I know you're gonna learn a ton, and Lat has a PhD in Physiology, Anatomy, and Genetics from the University of Oxford. He also holds a Master's from Columbia University and a Bachelor's from the University of Nottingham in Biotechnology. He is bringing to this chat over 10 plus years of experience spanning everything from academic research, health tech, and pharmaceuticals. At one point, he had his own company. He's worked for a number of different startups. We got into a lot of conversations, even around the business side of things and today he is currently the research lead for a company called hvmn and there he oversees their scientific development and all of the clinical applications for the company's products we talk specifically about one of their supplements that i actually took before the recording lat takes himself and i'm excited to continue to use it's called ketone iq we walk through a lot of the different applications of it and this is an amazing episode for anybody who really wants to understand more about keto what it is what ketosis means what keto the ketogenic diet actually is what's functioning inside of your system understanding your metabolism and how that functions and looking at insulin resistance a lot of these buzzwords that keep getting thrown around and we talk about the misinformation on social media and who to listen to and how to really discern what's right and what isn't but at the end of the day one of my favorite parts about this episode is we actually kick it off talking a lot more about habits and the basics and how basic decisions and looking at the big rocks the big stuff that can have an impact on changing your health is what even helped lat get healthy and change his own trajectory and have his own personal transformation losing over 45 pounds at one point in his life when by the way and we'll talk about this in more detail he had possibly every excuse in the book to not necessarily commit to himself he was in a new country he was studying there's a lot of stress in those environments potentially lack of sleep just all the variables that a lot of people may point to and say oh this isn't the right time for me to do something he went ahead and did it anyway and he really tries to use that as a way to highlight that as i've said many times on this show before as i say to my clients often there's never a perfect time but there are steps that we can take to really dial in behavior change and set ourselves up for success one of them of course being working with people to support you like a coach. So if you listen to this episode, you get to the end and you're like, okay, this was the kick in the butt I potentially needed. I'm finally ready. You know what to do. Reach out to me. Would love to potentially have you as a part of my Fitness Fix family and work with you and help you figure out if we're the right fit in whatever your goals are. Maybe even just helping you frame up what those goals are and putting them into a more realistic timeline. Shoot me a message at the Krista Huber Would love to hear from you guys. If you have any feedback about the podcast as well, I am excited to kind of take this podcast and continue to watch it grow and hopefully get back into a rhythm of more weekly episodes very soon. So excited to share updates and exciting things for the show. But in the meantime, enjoy this episode with Lat. What is your go-to coffee order? Do you like caffeine? Do you drink coffee? If you don't, you can give me a little bit of the background as to why. You can answer the question however you want, however it applies.
0: So, um, to disappoint you, is that this question does not apply to me because okay. I do not drink coffee.
1: I um, saw before we hit record a little tea bag in yes, your coffee mug, I, so I there figured. Go, there you go. Yep. What kind of tea that's, do you like That's to drink? my
0: green tea. That's my okay, green nice. tea. So I do consume caffeine. I'm, I typically consume green tea as a pre-workout because okay. my body is just very sensitive to caffeine. And if I have too much in a day, I will get headaches and dehydration and all of that. I've tried using Celsius as pre-workout. It worked for about a week or so, but then prolonged usage still gave me headaches. So I found green tea to be good compromise so that that does that qualify as an answer it totally
1: qualifies whenever i have anybody who has any sort of science nutrition anything that kind of background i will ask them to dive a little deeper as to why they might not necessarily drink coffee so i think it makes it for a little bit more interesting and is a perfect segue to my second question and that is who are you and before you jump in with that i want to kind of caveat this a little bit so you can give us your resume and it's quite long and you have a list of degrees and accomplishments and you're working on some really cool projects right now and we're going to get into all of that but what i really want to know when you set this up for us is if somebody's tuning into this episode right now why should they continue listening like why are they going to care about what you have to say in this conversation
0: Okay, so who am I, and how am I going to tie that tie that to why should a listener continue listening? Yes. Well, I am a Malaysian, born and bred. I'm study all over the world in metabolism, physiology, anatomy, and genetics. And today we're gonna talk a lot about metabolism, physiology, and genetics. But most importantly, before Anything before I'm an um, I'm an employee of HBMN before I am a scientist I am a human, so I've gone through a lot of challenges myself. I grew up overweight. I lost over forty five pounds, gained back the weight with muscles, and gone through some COVID weight as well, and then lost another twenty pounds. I've given up smoking after smoking for seven years. Um, and that was also one of the reasons why I didn't like coffee, because when I was smoking, I told myself I will not be one of those stereotypical smoker, coffee drinker. <laughs> and then when I stopped smoking, I realized I actually don't like the bitter taste of coffee anyway. So that's why I didn't drink, you know, or started drinking coffee. And then caffeine gave me headaches. So that works out. Um, and it's always a, an interesting point when I tell people that I went through my entire PhD without drinking coffee. They're like, how do you do it? Yeah. Seriously. It's crazy. So I think I think this is me, you know, scientist, employee of HPMN, research lead research lead of HBMN, and also human who's going through all these changes, you know, aging, performance, sleep, rest, recovery, training, as everyone is.
1: Yeah, I love it. It resonates so perfectly with the way I coach a lot of my clients, my nutrition clients know that. Anything I'm guiding them through, and I've even heard you say this in other podcast interviews, you use yourself as the test case, right? As the experiment. And that's really how we learn how to listen to our bodies. But more importantly, show up very authentically in a space that just in the wellness industry overall is crowded with some imposters, a lot of misinformation, a lot of very confusing information as well. And honestly, I think that might even be the perfect jumping off point to figure out how to dive into this conversation and dive into understanding metabolic health. We can talk about insulin resistance. We can talk about what ketones are. I want to really set the stage for the listener, because I think just even in some of the research that I've done on HVMN on some of the other podcasts you've done, the difference with the audience here is it really is that lame, the person who needs to hear this in layman's terms. Mm -hmm. And I know that that was a really big influence on some of your school decisions and some of your decisions to even pursue your PhD. So let's set that up by talking about you first like how the heck did you achieve a lot of the things that you have and and enter into the biotech space coming from malaysia like what prompted all of this for you
0: well first of all um i would like to say thank you krista for acknowledging that and for listening to what i've said to other people about what actually inspired me to start learning science to begin with is to connect with people and change people's lives and and people like you exactly are doing that right you 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 reach the amount of people in the world and change their lives on a daily basis and I figured being a scientist being in the lab would not allow me to do that so so back in Malaysia in high school you know I always wanted to be an astronomer
1: oh Um, wow until I
0: was 17 I didn't want to be an astronaut because I knew that means I have to go out to space all the risks and away from home and away from earth but I I love learning about astrophysics and, as, you know, all of that. Um, but then I realized at a very early age, about 17, that in Malaysia, that sort of job prospect is not very bright in Malaysia. So then my interest shifted towards genetics and biology. And then I started doing biotechnology. So I did biotechnology as my undergrad in University of Nottingham in the UK. And then... That's when, you know, because biotech is such a broad subject, mm-hmm. you cover everything from microbiology to nutrition, to animal physiology to plant science to food science, everything you can think of. And then, from there, I did my final year project in adipose tissue metabolism, which is fat metabolism, and I created a mathematical model of it. Um granted, it's very rudimental. It's very undergrad. but, it allowed me to dig deeper into metabolism. And that was also the year that I decided to give up smoking and I lost 45 pounds of weight. So that was very close to my heart, like that period of time because of the entire transformation that I was going through physically, mentally, emotionally, mm-hmm. as well as academically, because Getting a first-class honours was the basic requirement for me to get a scholarship to do a postgrad. And I knew at that point, having just an undergrad as a scientist wouldn't guarantee me a high paying job or a good job or something that would allow me to reach the masses. So I decided to do a master's because I wasn't sure if I'm ready for a four-year commitment in the lab to do a PhD. So that was when I applied to Columbia University in New York. I was very lucky because I was very close to the deadline and master's in biotechnology. At that point, it says GRE, graduate record record examination, was optional. And I didn't have time to take the GRE. So I applied without the GRE. And because it says it's optional, so I just applied anyway. And I got in. So I was, I lucked out. You know, getting into Ivy League, I didn't even know what Ivy League was, by the way.
1: Wow. Because
0: <laughs> I was very much UK centric at that sure. point. So and the I didn't university know
1: system is so different. It's so yeah. different.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like three years undergrad, one year master's, three year PhD. The time is, it's all very different. Um, so then I went to Columbia. I went to New York, first cosmopolitan city I've, I've been in. And it's so unique because it's, you know, as soon as you come out of the university, it's like New York City. But then you can also yeah. go back into the university. It's very much in so a So you didn't want
1: to be an astronaut and go super far away from home, but you went to the U.S. for the first time and landed in New York, it was, right? It That's was kind of was like an, a little bit of a foreign experience, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly.
0: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to leave the Earth, but I'll just stay on Earth, but just about 20 hours flight away. Um, I always knew I wanted to play on a bigger playground, I think, ever since I was young in Malaysia. And... I knew, you know, in order to do that, I need to excel in my studies, I need to excel in order to get scholarship to be on an international stage. And even on an international stage, I am competing with the best of the best in the world, you know, like America, China, Canada, all these big countries, you guys have got huge amount of talents, right? University admission is, it's a pain because you are competing with a big pool of talent. So, I'm glad what, you know, with what I did and where where I, you know, ended up. But nonetheless, it was a stressful time, you know, waiting for results and all of that. So I did biotech and during that masters, I learned more about drug development, clinical trials, um, learned more about pharmaceutical companies. And that was when I got my first job in New Jersey, where you're at. Love it. So we get get into the New Jersey side. Yeah. So I was living on manhattan you know a few blocks away from columbia university and i got this job um as a clinical trial coordinator very entry position and it was by luck i got that job as well because in 2010 it was recession it was very difficult looking for a job especially for an international because the companies know that they have to sponsor you
1: visas, they right? visas mm-hmm. and all
0: of that so but by chance i got connected to the CEO of this company, the medicines company, Clive Meanwell, super smart guy. I, I have so much respect for him. And uh, also the global head of R&D, Demetrius, um, and he met me as an sort of informational interview and he told me everyone deserves a chance and then they called me back in three weeks and they're like, we've got a position, would you like to interview for it? Wow. And I did. And I got the job. So Dimitri is actually one of the people who inspired me to apply for my PhD, because he has a PhD from Oxford and his supervisor is a Nobel prize winner as well. That's so amazing. I got inspired during my time working at the medicines company for a year and a half, because I'm looking at all these super smart people, they all have PhDs, but unlike the common knowledge or common understanding of people that all these scientists and PhDs are boring. They mm-hmm. are lab rats. They do not have social skills. They're socially awkward. I see the opposite. They are so entrepreneurial. They can give a presentation. They can hold your attention. They can talk to you in such an engaging way that you will come out feeling happy, feeling empowered and feeling that you have learned so much more about yourself and, and more. So that was when I decided to apply for a PhD in Oxford and Cambridge and Oxford um, accepted me first and I was so happy with that I called my boss and I was working in Munich then um, because after half a year in New Jersey they flew me to Munich and work full-time for my boss who was based there and I said hey you know I got I got a place in Oxford and he was like so are you gonna go I was like. Yeah, I think I, I will. And and you are one of the reasons why I'm inspired to go too. Because he also has a PhD. He was from Roche and then he was co-founder from, from the company. And then the CEO, Clive, also said uh, he was so proud and he gave me a part-time assignment. So I had a cool. scholarship and a part-time job. So, so a full-time pay gig with a student lifestyle. So that was one of the best times well apart from the stress from phd but don't talk we'll we <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll skip that but you know apart from that it was a fairly nice deal you know um and that was when i i really put in it, my work into diabetes and cardiovascular disease so this is where things get serious like my yeah. mom's side has really high prevalence of diabetes my late okay. dad died of stroke but he had a heart attack a few years prior to that. Mm. And so I know that both cardiovascular disease and diabetes are very prevalent in both sides of my family. And I somehow ended up learning about those two diseases. So I specialize in looking at metabolism of the diabetic heart in hypoxia, which is low oxygen environment. And some people ask why hypoxia? Why low oxygen? Because when you have a heart attack, it's called, um, when you have an occlusion, ischemia occurs. Ischemia is when you have blocked artery and you have the lack of blood flow being transported to your heart. And during that lack of blood flow, three things happen. You have the lack of substrates going in, you have the lack of oxygen going in, and you have the lack of wastage of a waste product coming out. So oxygen being one of the most important element in living organisms, it's something that we evolutionarily evolve to react really quickly to. So that's why we want to study our hypoxia and low oxygen, because that effect, you can see that significant change really quickly. That's why we use hypoxia as a subset of ischemia, as a subset of heart attack, um, and look at the difference in metabolism and how does that affect Uh, mortality and survival rate in diabetic patients
1: now before we go more into that because i do have a couple questions just around like the specificity of what you really chose to dive into on your phd i want to go back Mm -hmm. to what you said about when you were getting your masters okay and that also being the time that you had your own personal transformation so were you was a lot of what you were learning when you were starting to dive in and understand metabolism how much did learning that information influence you to make changes in your life
0: that's an amazing question because it was it started sort of end of my undergrad in my final oh, okay. year or in here do you call it senior year it's
1: yeah. the final mm-hmm. year yeah yep. so
0: so um It was during my final year and I had to do my final year project, which which was the fat metabolism mathematical model. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my friends thought that I literally used myself as the model because I lost weight during that year, like 45 pounds during that year. And there was a lot of fat loss then. And they were like, were you actually using yourself? Um, I'm like, no, actually there were two different things. But nonetheless, yes, learning about that really helped me understand what I can do to change. Because growing up overweight and seeing most of my family members being overweight, mm-hmm. you sort of get programmed that this is the norm. Sure. This is what you are going to grow up into. This is what you're going to end up, you know, when you are an adult. But learning about metabolism, learning about lifestyle changes, helped me understand my power in taking control or taking back taking control back on, on, on my own life. And that was when I had that transformational change. And after the weight loss, I moved to New York. And as you know, you know, New York, everyone looks amazing. Everyone has six pack, everyone, you know, either model or Broadway dancers, or, you know, from 15 to 60, they're all in shape. Most
1: of them. Right. It's gotta be all that walking lat. That's what I really think it is. It's so underrated, but come on, all that neat
0: yeah. Oh, that need. That. I know yeah. people under- underestimate that. It's like mm-hmm. 20 blocks. Oh, that's nothing. 20 blocks, you know. Um, so that was when I started learning more about um, muscle building, okay. more about gymming, weightlifting, strength training, because before that I was very heavy into the cardio. I was okay. just running. I was just eating healthy. I was living on tuna salad for a year. No way. Can can tuna Like because I was a poor student, <laughs> but that that helped me lose.
1: You got your protein.
0: I got my protein. I got my veg. I lost my weight, so I got my goal. But will I do it again? Probably not. <laughs> um, I have better options now. So
1: it's really it's it is really interesting though. Like I, it was kind of like the chicken or the egg. Like what came first was really what I was thinking and asking you that question because to your point of like. Growing up a certain way and just kind of assuming that's what's your de- That's your destiny, right? Like if everyone else around you is overweight or there's a history of that in your family, whether it's yeah. because you believe like, oh, I'm fighting against poor genetics and I'm sure yeah. we could have a whole conversation around that, yeah. or is it to me, I think so much of that has to do with environment and even more specifically when it comes to food. I bring this up to my clients all the time and this could be to a client that is in their 40s 50s even older and I say to them you have to remember that nobody ever taught you how to eat like if you really look all the way back from the first time you ever consumed anything whether that was breast milk a bottle whatever it was to then making that transition of table food or you know regular foods like somebody just put it in front of you and then the rest is history. And then you progress through your life and you maybe go off to college or that first point, at that first point when you're living alone, all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is up to me now. Yeah. And depending on how and what your relationship with food looked like, how you might have been talking about that when you were growing up, it can go a whole lot of different ways. And I just think it's like this really kind of fascinating situation compared to the way we learn everything else in our lives when you really break it down that way.
0: Absolutely, because that was also when I realized and and moving out of my country, moving away from my family really helped me understand that the whole lifestyle of eating five meals of heavy, heavy carb loaded meals per day, is not normal. It's not what we should be doing. Plus we were not even exercising. So imagine having fried rice, chow mein or whatever, right before you go to bed. First thing you do when you wake up, eating throughout the day it's yeah. a lot of calories and I am so glad and happy now my family actually you know through me and also my brother got into uh, weightlifting. uh you know we sort of changed the dynamic in the in the in the family and my mom is eating less less carbs and and started to do exercise and gave up smoking so I think it it works out at the end. Yeah, and
1: the the cultural component is huge too. I didn't share this with you before we started recording, but I studied abroad in China in Mm -hmm. 2015. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, like even thinking about the relationship that a lot of Chinese had with exercise. It was so funny to me because it was so different. But people would be on my campus where I lived, like walking around the track in like jeans and flip flops, like sneakers and like leggings and workout clothes weren't even a thing. And I think that in and of itself was so indicative of how less important per se that that was in somebody's lifestyle there. Or Mm -hmm. I even think to myself about like what my breakfast options were like in terms of like the flavors that like and and different things that you would eat like it just that that's just the way it is right and then that's that becomes all that you know
0: yeah yeah exactly because you you know imagine a kid you you can't know what you don't know exactly right unless you go out there you see it what other people do you see you know you learn about what you should be doing you listen to podcasts or whatever um you won't know like that's what you're used to and that's your lifestyle and we are creatures of habit mm-hmm. and that is why nowadays so many companies out there thrive on lifestyle change or behavior change um because that actually saves lives that actually reverses diabetes that actually re- decrease risk of chronic diseases because that is something that is hard to do but once you've done it it makes a significant change
1: yeah And I think that could honestly, that right there could be like the most important thing to come out of this conversation as one of the biggest takeaways, behavior change, because that really is so much of what this is. I've had, you know, some other people come on the show and talk about just when it comes to anything around diabetes in particular, talking about insulin resistance, I'm thinking back to a conversation I had last summer with Dr. Casey Means with Levels Health and our whole conversation around the continuous glucose monitor. And one of the biggest things she said, like the information that a doctor is finally getting in the doctor's office especially when you look at something like glucose or insulin is the accumulation of 10 plus years of decisions Yeah. like when it gets to a point of where hey this is a problem yep. it could have been addressed because there were all these other small micro decisions yep. that you were making throughout your day that added up over time
0: yeah and i think people need to know that our body is very very good at balancing itself Yeah. Saying. So, whenever there is an imbalance, our body will, you know, secrete hormones, enzymes that counterbalance that, that makes that normal. So, in this case, you know, insulin balancing the glucose level to a point where your pancreatic beta cells can't produce insulin anymore. And that's where the failure happens. And then suddenly you're like diabetic. It doesn't happen overnight. Like you said, it developed over the past 10 to 15 years. And that's exactly why people should sort of make more informed decisions, And that's that's one of my main goal here, main aim, you know, at the company and also in my life while I do podcasts and, you know, be on certain platforms is to be able to spread this knowledge and information so that people can make their own informed decision. I'm not telling them what to do, but I'm just arming you with enough information so that you can make that decision because you need to be empowered yourself. And you are the only person who can do that for yourself.
1: Totally. You really are. I even, I find myself saying that a lot too. Like I have plenty of people that I work with that they can check the box and listen to the things that I'm saying, but multiple things go on and it comes down to you having to want it more than me. Like the minute I'm in a relationship with one of my clients where I can tell that I'm kind of pulling for something or trying to get them to be a certain way. And it might not be that they don't have it in them, it just might be the wrong time, right? Yeah. But the way that we can potentially look at it is to say, hey, like this this is the situation you're in, and here are the three different options that we could potentially choose. Yeah. And really playing that role as a coach, or in your case, as a scientist, as a researcher, to just lay it all out on the table and say yeah. like, hey, we can choose this path, here are the potential outcomes. Or yeah. we choose this path, here are the potential outcomes. And then the, the individual feeling empowered to figure out which one makes sense for them at that given time.
0: Yeah. And I think it's also very important for us, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well, but for us to acknowledge that behavioral change is not as simple as, hey, you go no. to the gym. Hey, yeah. you just go up and, and start walking. Hey, stand more instead of sitting by your desk. There's a lot of emotional and mental um, fixation into that behavioral change. There's a lot of, trauma, habit, whatever that is associated with the, the toxic behavior or with the bad behavior. And we're only scraping the surface. I was lucky because I think what got me through that emotional challenge, because the, the physical part was was easier, I would mm-hmm. say, than the mental part, than the mental and emotional part. What got me through was my competitiveness.
1: Oh okay. um
0: was because I when on a run with my housemate. Now, mind you, she is a state swimming captain back in Malaysia. So she has stamina. Like she's yeah. this tiny little girl. Like, and she's still, she still beats my ass. Like she does CrossFit and all that now. And Leanne, love her to death. And she would just go, right? She's just like right there in front. And I was almost blue. She was like, should I need... Like, do I need to call the ambulance? Because that was the first time. And I was still smoking then as well. So I was really, my cardiovascular fitness was really bad. Um, But over time, you know, having that pride, I was like, I'm 22. I cannot allow myself to be like this. And I forced myself to run further and further every day. I I look at, you know, we ran across uh, around the university and there are trees around the lake. So I aim for the next tree Mm. and the next tree and the next tree. So that was what got me through. But now I think in this stage of my life, I am still learning about emotional and mental change in improving myself in growth. And just recently, I learned more about meditation and learned more about how neuroscience tied into ancient spiritual practice that has been tried and and it works but somehow people don't know about the science and now that you know more researchers more neuroscientists are acknowledging that practice and actually seeing and measuring objective results in performance in cognitive enhancement in just peacefulness and just happiness in general
1: yeah and you know there's a couple of things you said that i just kind of want to reiterate there one being your story about running and making the point about always just looking for the next tree. That's a really, really great tactic that you're describing without necessarily naming it in the value of setting really short-term goals and things that you know are achievable and setting yourself up for success. Mm. I have a lot of people that come to me and they're ready and they're committed and they really want to make changes. And mm. one of their misconceptions is that they need to try to change six things at once. yeah. And that really, really actually hurts them because yeah. it's just too much. Like yeah. I was listening to another podcast just the other day. And it was another nutritionist and she was talking about like compliance around habits and the stats she shared were wild. It was like, if you focus on one habit at a time, your compliance rate is up to 80%. If you bump Mm. it up to three habits at one time, it drops all the way to 30% in terms of compliance. 30%, where's the other 70? That's not really setting yourself up for a successful outcome. If you only go 30% in on a potential dietary change, I hate to say it, but you're either going to take a very long time to see any results or frankly, you're probably not going to see too many yeah. like significant results at all um so i love that and i love that point of just saying like can we set ourselves up one for success two but just pick something that's just right in front of you and then once we get there we push it a little more and then a little bit more after that your second point about meditation and and some more of this cognitive the cognitive side of things also makes me want to ask you about your background being from malaysia but going into this very science heavy like very data-driven world how have you maybe kind of paired that with some more influence of like that eastern versus western medicine and that sort of thing
0: you know this is very interesting because a lot of the eastern medicine and eastern spirituality that i learned from my mother for example um i didn't question it before I I learned it when I was young. I never questioned it because I wasn't a scientist before. I didn't know what to question. I didn't know how to question. But then as I grew older, as I learned more about science, I didn't think about what I learned Hmm. about the Eastern medicine until it surfaces up, like, for example, right now.
1: Right, because it's like a hot topic.
0: And then now I think about it. And, you know, for example, like mushrooms, Uh, not the psychedelic kind, just like the herbal mushrooms. Like Mm -hmm. people are using mushrooms for performance for um, metabolic health nowadays. Yeah,
1: all the adaptogens. uh,
0: Yeah, Yeah. adaptogens. Mm -hmm. I looked at the names and I didn't know any of them, but then I looked at the pictures. I was like, my mom cooked this every day. My mom puts this in soup every day. And my mom has been telling us that it's good for your health, like since I was young. So there is definitely a, a correlation for sure. And I think, the the chinese traditional chinese medicine they have survived history they have survived like centuries for a reason why people are still practicing them so i i do believe in them and even with science heavy i think certain things can be measured um if you measure those if you have the right protocol and if you have if you set the right endpoint for sure you can you can measure that but also um, real quick to acknowledge how much I I, I love doing this in, in particular, is because people like you acknowledging my way of thinking with a, with a tree. Because I didn't know about that, right? I just thought about it myself. I'm like, if I just can take one more step, mm-hmm. that's one more step that no one can take away from me. And it's it's so small, but so powerful so thank you for that
1: you're welcome it's so (laughs) powerful and and too like i've been thinking about it since you first started off and just describing your academic and educational journey too because when i think about any kind of obstacle that somebody i may be working with is facing or even things i've faced in my own life like how many times have you used as a potential excuse and i don't want to call it an excuse because it's it's a very big life event but you're moving, you're starting a new job, this change is happening, something's different in your environment. Those are all really logical reasons. It's stressful. You probably weren't getting a lot of sleep. You even said like, maybe you weren't eating the best foods, right? Like those are all reasons to potentially say from a very objective lens, like this would not be the time to necessarily start a new diet only because it's hard, right? Like it just isn't the optimal state for you yeah. to be in to make that happen and you may be making and your metabolism in particular worse yeah. in a lot yeah. of those situations yeah.
0: because you're adding more stress because change is always stressful mm-hmm. um both you know physically and emotionally like you are adding stress to your body so that your body can adapt and be stronger um but adding in and introducing stress while you are in a stressful position may overwork your body and not actually get the required uh, the the um intended results mm-hmm. but that's why like last last weekend was it two weekends ago i was at ketocon so one lady erica super sweet um lady she was telling us that she was struggling with weight she's struggling with depression but she's ready for a change she's determined um she learned about keto and iq and she tried it for the first time later on that day i asked her how do you feel She said, like, i felt great i was like what about you know, appetite. uh, She was like, oh yeah, I didn't even think about it. I didn't eat that much today, but I feel great. I got the energy, but I told her, you know, get motivated now, you know, for sure, but enjoy the journey. Enjoy the journey, celebrate the end goal because the journey is as important, if not more so than the end goal. And that's where the trees come in, you know, one step at a time. Amen. That, That is that journey that I would always cherish and I will always tell that story. Um, to remind myself more more than telling people that, so that if anything i I face today, any predicament I face today, or any training you know wall that i I bump into, I know that I can get past that eventually if I keep going one step at a time.
1: Yeah, so true. And let's kind of, you know, to get into HVMN and ketone IQ and like really kind of bring this up to where you are now, let's kind of continue to walk through that timeline. Right. So I mentioned that I wanted, I do want to dive into a little bit more on where you really focused your PhD research and talking Mm -hmm. about diabetes and where from at that point, you know, you decided to specialize in this and you're finishing your PhD. Where did you go next? Like, what was the next step for you? And I really want you to tie this back to what you talked about from the very beginning in saying that you were exposed to scientists who were more entrepreneurial. And and I wonder if that really helped kind of influence your next career decisions.
0: That 110% did influence my next um, career decision because as many PhDs or PhD graduates, if they want if they want to get away from academia and Mm -hmm. go into industry. And I get this question a lot by students as well. When I give like guest lectures, they'll they'll be like, how do I get into industry? Where do I start? And I did the more typical choice where I would go into management consulting. So the consulting firms, McKinsey, Mm -hmm. Bain, BCG, Boston Consulting Group, because there you can be a generalist where right. you learn everything and anything. you get exposed about to a lot
1: of different types of companies
0: and networking and all mm-hmm. of that. And then through that, you transition out. Okay. But then during that application process, and, and I, I didn't get, you know, I got interviewed, but wasn't really successful. And some of the, the interviews I didn't even feel right. Cause I said to them, you know, I would love to have my own company one day. Like what can I learn from this job that I can bring to my sort of future life and the answer wasn't very satisfactory because they were like oh we talked to the c suites and we talked to ceos and all that so we learned from them but i'm like so you don't do it yourself so i Mm -hmm. want something more hands-on and a startup person that i met at university he told me he's like well if your goal is in entrepreneurship and startups why don't you start right at startups? Why do you go the roundabout way of going through management consulting and then go into startup? I was like, you got a point. So I went back to Malaysia. Two months later, I got a job in Singapore um, with a company called Holmusk. It's a diabetes management program company, very similar to Omada Health, Livongo. Okay. They have an app. They have in-house dietitian. People can um, have their photo-based Boot logging, they can track their glucose, track wow. their weight, track their steps, everything in the app, and they can communicate with the dietitians. And I was their director for business development. So coupling my knowledge in diabetes, as well as my ability to speak and connect with people, I was in a very unique position where I can talk to different stakeholders, healthcare providers, payers, um, intervention cardiologists, for example, scientists, researchers, all of them I can connect to and be able to explain why behavioral change is good for you. Behavioral change is good for the company. How does this increase productivity? How does this increase um, satisfaction, employee satisfaction? So therefore, you know, decreasing um, uh, medical claims and all of that. And that was my first gig out of my PhD. I I worked there for a year and a half, and then I came out and started my own company. So I did start my own company. I did have my own company for a year and a half. It was also a health tech company, which focuses on using chatbots to help people interpret the results of their blood tests. So in Asia, and Southeast Asia, as as you probably know, especially the older generation, they're so afraid of going to the doctors. They're so afraid of going to check you know, do the annual checkups, because for them, ignorance is bliss. Mm -hmm. Because if I don't know if I'm sick, I can still live happily. But no, you should know because there are a lot of diseases can be prevented. Lifestyle diseases, you know, so hoping that helping them to understand the blood test results would get more engagement and get more understanding and increase the level of awareness as well as Um, understanding of what they can change in order to maximize their lifespan as well as quality of life so I did that for a year and a half before HVMN found me Um, and they flew me in in 2019 in June for an interview I met the whole team throughout the week and by the end of the week they gave me an offer and I started end of August 2019 been here since then
1: so you're coming up on a work anniversary too. I am. Cool.
0: I am in, in, in a month. Yeah, three years with the company.
1: So let's talk more about HVMN. Let's. Okay. I I took some of the ketones IQ right before this, and I Same will here. say I, saw I was feeling a little sluggish. Okay. Earlier, because mm-hmm. yesterday was a very busy day. I wake up early to teach. Been on a lot of Zoom calls all day today, and i i don't know like i'm i'm not sure if i'm like a placebo kind of person or what but i feel great right now i feel very dialed in this is also very interesting to me so
0: is this the first time you've taken it before yes okay okay well
1: so i need to take it a few more times so that i have more to like really kind of compare to exactly
0: you just need sample size because Mm -hmm. you know you can't placebo sample size right so right um, so yeah, I mean, you don't seem sluggish. You were on point. You were asking all the right questions. I'm, I'm enjoying our conversations. So Thank you. I'm glad it helped. Um, yeah. I did it too, because, um, you know, I had morning running around, running errands and meetings. So, um, what is HVMN? HVMN is health via modern nutrition. Our goal is not push for ketogenic diet or push for exogenous ketones, or our goal is Getting, the, getting products and knowledge out there that can help people improve their metabolic health. Because health via modern nutrition, the modern nutrition as we know it is not what we should be doing, right? What the FDA, uh, USDA um, recommends, that needs to be reviewed, that needs to be updated. And for now, we know that Chronic insulin elevation, chronic, you know, high glucose intake, is what's contributing to the high prevalence of chronic diseases. So, therefore, we are advocating low carb, low sort of glucose intake. You know, control, monitor your your biomarkers and control your nutrition as well as being active. So we will never say take ketone IQ or solve all your problems. Just sit at your home and not do anything. You know, I IQ is a supplement. I always tell people it's a supplement. First and foremost, fix the foundation. Mm-hmm. What's your lifestyle like? What's your nutrition like? What's your sleep pattern like? Things that can easily be done free. You don't have to pay for it, right? You just have to know how and do it. And then you dial it up, you know, maybe get a personal trainer, you know, up, up your training program, get a nutritionist. If you feel like you need one, Um, to to up your diet game and then have supplements like ketone IQ increase your cognitive um, performance or increase your physical performance before gym. So that's how I would approach it. Um, So I think that's HVMN in a nutshell, but we also do a lot of interesting um, things and research around exogenous ketones. Um, I'm a principal investigator of a $6 million contract with the department of defense we're looking at using exogenous ketones in cognitive and physical performance in hypoxia again low oxygen environment how is this important when the military are in, you know on high altitude they have altitude sickness they have drop in cognitive um performance because oxygen being so important in respiration and mm-hmm. atp generation and the brain uses to up to 25% of energy expenditure of the entire body because it governs everything we do, it uses a lot of oxygen too. So as soon as there is a drop in oxygen saturation in your blood, in your body, the brain ability to perform optimally will drop significantly. So that's what we're trying to to figure out. If they have ketones, which is a substrate that increases, you know, um, that gives the brain the 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 fuel and substrate to produce energy, would that make a difference? And so far the preliminary results were really, really promising. It's really That's fascinating. Interesting. It increases oxygen saturation, increases reaction time, increases memory, especially memory. I mm. I I've, I've um I've seen the results last week. Um, it looks very interesting because it it increases the retention of, of memory. Um, and of course, you know, taking it out of a military context would that be beneficial to normal people like you and I? Absolutely. You know, we don't need to be in high altitude. We don't need to be in hypoxia, but acutely, sometimes we're in hypoxia too. For example, when you're exercising, when you're not taking in enough oxygen to supply your cells with the oxygen, you you know, you turn up glycolysis because it's oxygen independent ATP generation, but will ketone help with that and get you like in the zone and, and focused I I personally experienced it and I loved it. And a lot of athletes, a lot of our affiliates also experience it, especially in CrossFit. I know because how intense CrossFit is. And Um, the style of
1: the workout being so heavily reliant on the glycolytic pathway with your Mm -hmm. typical like AMRAP as many rounds as possible, that endurance style kind of workout. Even though it is resistance-based, that element of it is really, you know, and, and I mean, I want to ask you this question. So it's kind of the perfect segue into it. You think about a workout like CrossFit. Yeah. My nutrition brain goes off and says, you know, we're gonna separate this out, like the ketogenic diet from ketones, cause I do yeah. want you to make that distinction. I think it's really important. Yes. But when people he hear the word keto, they're thinking of the ketogenic diet, right? Yeah. Yeah. And when I think of CrossFit, I think of keto being like quite possibly one of the worst potential diets you could do in that Absolutely. situation. Absolutely. So let's break down why.
0: Let's break down. And before that, I just wanna point out, there's a recent paper that compared using exogenous ketones with carbs versus mm. ketogenic diet in oh. exercise. And okay. in that paper- what the findings? The ketogenic diet actually decreased performance by 50%. But as expected, it, it increased oxygen. Uh, sorry, it increased fatty, else, fatty acid oxidation. Mm. So as we all know, ketogenic diet is very, very good in weight loss, in helping people burn the excess fat that they don't want. But if you're using it for performance- some people who are more keto adapted, you know, athletes who are, then you know, that's fine. But at high intensity, nothing can beat glucose when it comes to high intensity energy generation. So having exogenous ketone allow you to to have the dual fuel um, system, and I'll talk about that in a bit. So let's let's break down ketogenic diet versus ketones that you can drink or eat or whatever. And endogenous ketone is inside it create it's created by your own liver so when you're on a ketogenic diet or you are fasting or you are in starvation which means you are low on glucose and you're low on glycogen your body will start breaking down fat and convert fat into um, ketones and that process is called ketogenesis and the ketones being produced is called endogenous ketones why you may ask while some of the fatty acids will also be used for metabolism It cannot bypass the blood brain barrier to enter your brain and your brain uses glucose and you don't have glucose. So what does your body do? Your body breaks down the fat into ketones so that ketones Mm -hmm. can enter your brain. And that's how we know ketone is such a uh, preferable fuel for brains. And and that's where all these studies around cognition starts to, um, you know, spring up and and, and, um, really spread out right now. Um, So that's endogenous ketone and ketogenesis, right? Exogenous ketone, which is external, is ketones that you can consume directly to increase your blood ketone levels. And this can be in many forms. One of the more well-known ketone, exogenous ketone would be ketone salts. So ketone salts have been around for a while. People know of it. it's essentially a ketone bound to a salt form, either sodium, potassium, or magnesium. The problem with ketone salt is that you can't take too much because of the salt load and you also get GI issue. And more studies now show that you need to get to a certain blood ketone level or blood BHP level. So the main ketone body in your body that is used for metabolism is called beta-hydroxybutyrate. And you will see this a lot on the market when people say this is DBHB. Okay. So that's what BHB is, beta-hydroxybutyrate, the main ketone body that is used for metabolism. So a lot of studies sort of pointed towards in therapeutic areas, you need to be at least one millimolar. And, and for reference, if you are not on ketogenic diet and you are not in ketosis, you're generally sitting around 0 to 0.1 millimolar of blood BHB. If you're, on, if you're in ketosis, Anything above 0.5, you're in ketosis. That's the general consensus. And if you're on ketogenic diet or fasting, generally you will get higher over time, but there's also a limit because your body, it depends on how much your body creates these ketones. But with exogenous ketone, you can bypass that and you can directly increase blood PHP level. And that's where the opportunity comes, where it allows you to mix and match different substrates. Because in normal physiological condition, you can never have glucose and ketones because you need to deplete your glucose first right. before ketogenesis happens. And that is why in such high-intensity exercise, high-intensity exercises, you get a drop in performance because mm-hmm. you don't have that glucose. But with exogenous ketones, you can still have glucose in your blood and you can be on a normal diet and not on a ketogenic diet, but consume ketones and the ketones will actually help you spare glycogen in your body and help you last longer that has been shown mm. so you can still perform but actually even like last longer for endurance exercises
1: wow so wow. i hope
0: that sort of covers yeah, that, a bit
1: that was amazing like so, that was such a great explanation and i learned a lot more in that too and even in helping me then explain it to somebody else my my next question that comes out of all of this and and even in just your comments about talking about the military example and all of those studies I'd love your take and putting more of your scientist hat on. I know that one of the biggest challenges when it comes to a lot of the research and studies that are performed around nutrition in particular, it's not necessarily the gold standard in terms of quality studies because Mm -hmm. it's so hard to control certain variables, right? Like the argument can be made that, oh, well, like, unless we were guaranteeing that these two potential people that were a part of this study were both sleeping the same number of hours like right. is that a variable that's potentially playing with the results here so h- how does that work like in a lot of the research that you do like what what how are you controlling for some of those things
0: so a lot of these studies either they will fast all the athletes so that you know they're faster overnight and okay. you know they're given the supplements so that we know whatever variables that is introduced is either placebo or ketones. Okay. And that has been, you know, shown to have performance um, improvement. And then there are papers who said, well, no athletes are going to go into the training or race fasted, right? That's not ecological. So let's do a more ecological. So they control the, the, the first meal of the day. Okay. They'll give them the same amount of food, same calories, and then give them the supplement and then, you know, um, make them do the exercise. So in that sense, they have actually seen no difference in performance. It didn't deplete the, the, it didn't like, it wasn't detrimental, Hmm. but there was no improvement. So people like, hmm, so is this good or bad for performance? Right. And then same group they're like, you know, I, we notice something, we notice when the ketone levels, and these are all with ketone esters, and ketone esters have been you know, uh, studied way longer than say ketone IQ or, or any, any other um, exogenous ketones because of the ability of ketone ester to elevate, to spike that blood BHP up to three to five millimolar. And then the same group kind of like, huh, the blood pH, which is blood acidity, actually increase or blood pH decrease, which means mm-hmm. increasing acidity, may have been causing the athletes not to perform as well, as well as they should with ketones. So they repeated that sort of protocol, but this time they introduced sodium bicarbonate because sodium bicarbonate is basic. So it buffers up it buffers out the acidity brought forth by the ketone levels. And they actually saw 5% improvement. So, um, another study who sh- which showed um, improvement in recovery. So, in that sort of um, study, they they monitor these athletes for three weeks. You know, standard practice in terms of they track the calories. They mm-hmm. they have their you know training program arranged very standardized and uh, very similar to Tour de France sort of training. Uh, and they are given protein, carbs, and ketones after training, as well as 30 minutes before bed. After three weeks, they saw 15% improvement in work output and also an increase wow. in calorie intake, which, you know, sort of reflected in in the in work output. So there are many ways where all these studies can be done and all these protocols can be designed. And one of the main things that, Jeff, our chairman, our co-founder, Jeff and I, we used to do this research roundup um, podcast on our own HVMN podcast where we would disseminate and and break down all these different papers, difference in protocols, and explain why they get the results that they get. And oh, how can really they and how can they improve it, and how can they add or subtract certain things, to be able to be compared to similar um, okay. studies, so hopefully we are in the process of reviving um, the HVMN podcast. So yeah,
1: I would love yeah. to. I can't. I mean, you know, like a lot of nutrition coaches in this space. Like I think something that we struggle with too is that there there's all this research that's coming out that yeah. then seems to kind of contradict to one another but I feel yeah. like what you're describing is kind of exactly the way to like debunk why yeah. hey this is not apples and oranges yeah. and and but also that like we do need to continue to do this research yeah. versus saying oh well it can't be the gold standard like it can't exactly. fit so it just can't be done.
0: Yeah, it just needs to be done in a way where people can benefit from it. Much because, you know, certain people, oh, they pre-fatigue it for, they pre-fatigue the athletes for three hours. Some mm. studies, they pre-fatigue for one hour. Maybe that's enough to deplete the glycogen to really see the effect of ketone shining. You know, some people say maybe you need three hours. And then some people say, oh, maybe you need varying sort of intensity, um, They got 101 different ways of of doing the exercise themselves, let alone the feeding protocol on top of that, right? And then when you increase, when you you like start measuring sleep and sleep quality and all of that, all these variables make a difference. And that's what it's so important for different groups to do all these studies and have different results. Because when we have different results, we can talk about it. And when we talk about it, we dissect it, we look closely, we, you know, go through it with a fine comb and that's how we learn and that's how we you know deduce what's the next best step in order to say you know if it does help it needs to be taken in a certain environment under a certain situation circumstance and x amount of time before you do certain things or after you do certain things and let's let's come up with the the right protocol for use cases
1: yeah what you just said, I think, is the most important takeaway from all of that, right? Like the, the doing it creates the opportunity for the conversation and then to really figure out, well, what's missing? Where do we need to go next? How can we interpret this? And, and I think encouraging the conversation with people who can really discern the information versus someone else grabbing a hold of it picking apart different pieces of information. I mean, I I heard you on another podcast recently talking about just the idea around under like that that research itself and like reading a research paper it's yeah. not necessarily something that the average person is going to go and do yeah. but maybe someone does it and they just kind of cherry pick certain information Yeah. all of a sudden you go on social media and there's like yeah. all these sweeping claims about there and then yeah. I get a client running to me who's like I think I should do this
0: all the clickbaits all yeah. all the clickbaits all the top you know titles yeah. of all social media posts of article post I'm um, competent Competitors coming around, you know, Mm -hmm. cherry picking and saying that, oh, you've done this wrong, that's wrong. Let's focus on the facts. Let's focus on on transparency and scientific integrity so that we can give people the purest form of information and knowledge. It doesn't need to be complete. It doesn't need to be perfect, but it just needs to be truthful and as as complete as the study goes. Do you know what I mean? And so that people can make their own informed decision. And also scientists can then take that information and develop further what protocol they should be using to improve it further. Sure. So.
1: Yeah. I want to go back to really quickly to just kind of you and you walking us through the process of understanding like how ketones function in the body and what that does for your brain and talking about glucose and, and your body using all of that. The other big question that I think somebody listening to this may be thinking about is they might want to explore something like a ketogenic diet, but one of the biggest pushbacks I give with them was let's talk about alcohol and how that really inhibits your ability to potentially achieve that like true ketosis. So can you kind of break that down a little bit?
0: Um, I think alcohol, um, so I, myself, I'm, I'm a lightweight. So I don't drink much. <laughs> so, you, you know, usually I don't, I don't, you know, sort of stay away, try to, um, I think alcohol definitely increased blood uh, glucose level. And when you increase blood glucose level, you are telling your body, you're sending signals to your insulin secreting cells to increase insulin secretion to lower it again. Right. Mm-hmm. And even if it's not just alcohol on top of the alcohol mixes, right. If you have pineapple juice, if you have Coke with it and that is definitely sugar. Yeah. So Having that insulin signal, that is exactly what's inhibiting your liver from ketogenesis. What we talked about earlier, the Mm -hmm. ability to produce ketones. And that is why it kicks you out of ketosis. Now, some people do sort of pair ketogenic diet with exogenous ketone in this sort of specific situations.
1: Oh, okay. Tell me more about that.
0: Because... They know that it's going to kick them out of ketosis, sure. or even if they have, you know, diet coke, for example, um, it will elevate to a certain extent, and their ketone levels might lower a little bit. Knowing that, and knowing that you have access to exogenous ketones,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you then you are forcing your body to have a higher level of beta hydroxybutyrate, um, and we have seen again and again, quite consistently, that after you drink um, exogenous ketone, especially like ketone IQ or ketone Ester, you see a mild drop in blood glucose. So there is a mild, you know, uh, decrease in blood glucose concentration. So people might use that to bridge between the period where they are, quote unquote, out of ketosis mm-hmm. into ketosis again. So, um, and we've done this with people on, on you know, um, Continuous monitoring of, of glucose, and during uh, during the the conference, and they dropped about ten points from like 142 to like 132 oh, wow. or 35 in 20 minutes and half an hour. Wow! And then throughout for another hour and a half or so, they dropped about 40 to 50 points. So maybe it's a good way to sort of mitigate it sort of allows more flexibility Mm -hmm. in a ketogenic diet. Sure. Um, So especially if your goal is to constantly stay in ketosis for that mental benefit for Mm -hmm. that, you know, increased uh, energy and all that. But if, and I always tell people this, if you're using ketogenic, ketogenic diet to lose weight and you want to burn your fat and it's working for you, you don't need exogenous ketones because improving or increasing your blood ketones even further will give you the benefit of like cognition and all of that. But if your goal is to to lose weight, it may help with appetite suppression to a certain extent, but not directly the fat burning. Like ketogenic diet and exercise are still the best at, at achieving that. So think about your use cases, trial and error, and figure out what your body wants and what your body works best with. That's what I would tell people because exogenous ketone does many things. You know, it's good for Alzheimer's. It's good for, you know, some studies it says it's good for diabetes. It's good for performance. It's good for recovery, but it doesn't solve everyone's problem, right? And at the end of the day, it is a supplement. Mm-hmm. So think about what you want to achieve out of consuming this and what your use cases are, what your goal is. And then from there, you can disseminate like what sort of protocol that you should be using, sure. how much you should be using.
1: Yeah, it's really all about the context, right? Like yeah. and you tying it back to the goals and, and what works for you. And and I think that's also a really good opportunity to point out too, you're in this for life either yes. way. So I yes. think the other challenging part is is a lot of people are so quick to want to try the next fastest thing that they can't get okay with potentially trying something to recognize that maybe it doesn't work for you yep. or not understanding why it works for someone else and it's not necessarily working for you.
0: And and also I have to point out that because of social media, people's perception of time that is needed to change your body is completely screwed. So it's completely off. completely off. Your body needs time to one, adapt to it, and two, to actually manifest those changes. Because think about it, right? You are changing fundamentally the biochemistry of your body. It doesn't just change overnight. It doesn't just change one week. If diabetes is a manifestation or disease progression of 10 to 15 years, you can't expect, you know, going on a keto diet or having exogenous ketone for a week, suddenly you are Superman. It's just unrealistic. What I would say is definitely let your body experience it and really invest the time to learn about your body's reaction to mm-hmm. certain supplements or certain lifestyle changes. And thankfully, we have a lot of tools now to be able to to measure objective yeah. measures, you know, continuous glucose monitoring. you know they're coming up with continuous ketone monitoring. You can measure you know sleep quality and ring and all of that. Like all these tools and technology will help you arrive to that point, but you still have to let your body take its time to change.
1: Yeah, it's so true. And I also think too, that, you know, you bring up a great point in talking about some of these tools. Like I have my whoop on right now. Um, I've worn the levels, continuous glucose monitor, and you could do all that and you could track all those things. But- To go back to our points about what we're talking about from a product level of these things just being supplements. If you don't also make the lifestyle changes, it's kind of like, well, for what?
0: Exactly. Exactly. Like you got to dial everything in before you add on and add on Mm -hmm. and add on. You can't, like you said, back to what you said, you know, if you have six changes at the same time, what do you know actually worked? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and which one are you going to concentrate on? If you have 30% you know, chance of committing to it, like, or adherence, then, you know, no wonder you're not getting results.
1: Right, and And why not go after that thing? That's the the, the thing that is gonna have the most impact, even if it might be the hardest change, like why not just go after that one thing? Because it's one thing instead of six. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, so I wanna ask you one other question before we wrap up the conversation. I am a, in my coaching. I particularly focus with most of the people I work with. Depending on like where they are, is mm-hmm. more of that macronutrient approach and really giving them the education around in teaching somebody how to eat versus what to eat. Really mm-hmm. understanding what is a protein, what actually is a carbohydrate, what is a fat. Yes, do I track a lot of that information with them? Most of the time, I do. Depending on where they are and again, context, what their goals are. But I have heard you in other interviews mention that you kind of look at ketones as like the fourth macro. Yeah. So I'd love for you to give a little more information around that.
0: Yeah, sure. I, I mean, you know, like I always tell people, ketone is just like any other substrates, like glucose or proteins or fat. And that is also why when people ask, oh, if I'm taking a shot of ketone IQ, there's 70 calories, What is this calorie from? Like, Like where is it coming from? You you said it's no sugar, there's no added this, no added that, but where's this calorie from? We're like, it's from the ketones itself, because ketones actually get metabolized and produce ATP similar way as glucose. So, if we go down biochemistry, glucose goes down glycolysis and then it produces acetyl CoA. acetyl CoA enters the mitochondria and enters the krebs cycle or the tca cycle and then you know goes down the oxidative phosphorylation to produce atp ketones also breaks down to two molecules of acetyl coa so acetyl coa same thing goes into mitochondria goes into the same cycle so it's just channeling different sources into that respiration um, process to produce energy so that is why we were saying that you know it's essentially fourth micro uh, mm-hmm. fourth macronutrient even though some people may argue well it comes from fat you know technically because you know your body breaks down fat when you are in starvation mode uh, to produce ketones but then with the emergence of exogenous ketones you can also technically call it you know fourth macronutrient because you're not taking in precursors you're not taking in fats Um, although some people do take mct oil for example as a Mm -hmm. precursor to increase their ketone productions but these straight up you know exogenous ketones directly increase your blood BHP level so therefore directly produce the acetyl-CoA that is needed for energy generation in Krebs cycle and oxidative phosphorylation so there you go
1: that's really interesting and to me it makes a lot of sense just in thinking about it in terms of like energy right and really ultimately then like I look at macros as like the second layer, you take it up one more layer to a higher level and we talk about calories. All of that comes down to that energy balance so I can understand and like looking at it through that lens how that all kind of fits in together.
0: Yeah. And if you think about it, if, you know, even if we go into the energy realm and talking about just simplified way, right? Right. What metabolism is is anabolism and catabolism. And most of the time, you know, when you're breaking down the bonds of the substrates, that's where energy you know, um, gets produced and gets recycled and produce ATP at the end uh, result. So glucose, for example, is a smaller molecule. So it goes down and that's why it's so good for fast energy generation.
1: Mm.
0: Fat, for example, is a much bigger molecule and that's why it can't get through the blood-brain barrier. But you also need way more steps in um, beta-oxidation, which is the fat metabolism um, pathway because you need to break one by one, the you know, the, those, those bonds. So whereas ketone is smaller than fat. So ketone is already broken down. Okay. So, so, you know, it can also create that, that faster energy than, than fats, for example.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I wanna ask you one other question around, you know, just in what I said earlier about when people hear the word keto or ketones or ketogenic diet, like I think the next thing That pops into their head is carbs equal bad. Right. And I kind of want you, you know, my, like whether we dispel that or not, my question for someone like yourself with your background and your knowledge is. Do you think like we have a carb problem or do you think maybe we have a carb availability problem? Does this all relate to like the, how hyper palatable foods are these days? Like I, I definitely don't want to end this conversation without talking about this.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I always tie that back to balance. I always tell people it's not about yes or no. It's not about black and white. It's not about switching on or off. It's ultimately about tuning what's right, the right amount. And no, we are not saying all carbs are bad. In fact, I just said it. Nothing can beat carbs when it comes to fast energy generation. Right. When you go for a sprint, when you go for high intensity workout, you need carbs. I go to the gym and lift weights. And on days that I don't have enough carbs, I do feel fatigue much faster. So they're not all bad. But then we're like, oh, but what about about diabetes? What about insulin resistance? That's when you have too much carbs. When you are taking in so much carbs into your body and you increase your blood glucose level to so high that your body is trying its best to compensate by excreting more and more insulin, by secreting more and more insulin to control that. And that balance was broken. And therefore, your pancreatic beta cells get overworked. And get damaged, and eventually you don't have insulin anymore, and then that's when your you know glucose control is all over the place. You get increased you know kidney damage, you get increased nerve damage, you get all these complications that comes with the disease. So I think it's to your point. Yes, availability of carbs for sure. You know the understanding of how much is enough is also another point because. One can go on low carb. Right now it's called low carb, but that might actually be the healthy portion of carbs. Sure. At what people should be having because the normal carb level is way too high for a healthy person to have. So we are not demonizing carbs. I think carbs have its, its place in, in a lot of use cases, you know, in performance especially. and um, And it's just people need to be Aware and educated in what is carb actually doing to your body, and people need to be aware of. Okay, if you're crashing because of sugar, why is that? Is that too much sugar, right? Okay, try those days without sugar. How do you feel, right? Or increase it, decrease it, trial and error. You know, see yeah. what's what works for you. Some people they they metabolize carbs really quickly. They need carbs. If they don't have it, they feel sick. Mm-hmm. So. You know, same thing. If you drink ketone IQ, I I tell people if you have low blood glucose problems, consult your doctor before taking it because some people may experience low blood glucose, like too low that you need carbs to go with it. So, yeah, I think that's that's the key of it. It's all about balance, like our body homeostasis. The 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 word homeostasis itself, you know, it's, it's it's yeah to balance it. It's everything will work in synergy in the right proportion, in the right amount. um, And we are constantly, you know, balancing it. And that's when you get optimal results. And one thing is off. There will always be something else to compensate. Mm -hmm. And over time, chronically, that's what's going to cause diseases.
1: Right. And I think to your last point that you just made in particular, that's really that idea around homeostasis, and you said it much earlier on in the conversation too, and just looking at inflammation and and talking about insulin resistance, People really don't understand, like, her bodies are so smart that they're constantly searching for that place of homeostasis. They're, so, homeostasis, like, they're, it's fighting yes. to get back to that all of the time. Mm-hmm. And I see this often just with the population that I work with in particular. I see it a lot with women when it comes to overtraining and yeah. uh, the little bit we talked about with like stress mm-hmm. and them not understanding why the desire to jump into as many workouts as possible, as frequently as possible may turn into over time, that fight from their body. If if other things aren't controlled the way that they should be.
0: Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. And I think people should start switching their mindset, then their mental state in understanding nutrition and metabolism as a switch on or off thing. Because for example, like inflammation, like you just said, people like, oh, Um, all these chronic diseases have high inflammation um, in the bodies. Therefore, inflammation is bad. So we need to like shut inflammation down. No, inflammation is actually a reaction to an infection. You need inflammation
1: in order to protect you.
0: Correct. But Mm -hmm. when your body is out of balance, that's when chronic inflammation occurs. Mm. And that's when you see, you know, the higher inflammation or higher biomarkers for inflammation in chronic diseases. So you need to think about it that way. It's not... Something is associated with disease, it's automatically bad. It is actually a mechanism of a coping mechanism of your body trying to deal with some form of imbalance that you have caused your body throughout the years.
1: Yeah. I like what you said, coping mechanism. I think that's a really good way of describing it. I yeah. think that's, that's where a lot of people can get lost in understanding that it's not necessarily a quote unquote bad thing. Yeah. Well, Lat, this has been an amazing conversation, and I want to be respectful of your time. I always end all of my episodes with a quick little lightning round, more of like rapid fire, fun questions for you. Okay, So we're just going to do a couple, and then I will let you go. Don't be nervous. (laughs) I've been thinking about it because there are just so many things I can ask you. We're going to talk about, I usually keep them around like fitness-related questions or food-related questions. Right. Just some more things to show your personality. Okay. So, let's see. This might be a really hard one, but I usually ask any anybody who's lived in New York at any time. I always ask this question: What is your absolute favorite restaurant in New York City?
0: Ooh, there's so many.
1: I know. Give me a couple, if you want.
0: Well, okay. When I was a student, I was, you know, I was not that, you know, well-to-do, right? So I always loved going to St. Mark's for Japanese food. Nice. st mark's you have cheap sushi and they're always on half price it's like as if like i'm like why don't you just price it lower there's always 24 <laughs> 7 it's half price that's and funny. i'm like it's that this is your price but i always like st mark so that's that's one um i left yeah i think there's a ramen place midtown i can't remember the name um that i really love those are the ones that i can think of right now those are
1: two good ones yeah what in you know in moving to the us for the first time if you can think back to this period in your life what was maybe like some of the biggest misconceptions that you had versus once you actually lived here
0: the the first time i came to us or came to the us was to new york and a lot of my American friends told me that you can't judge the rest of America by the standards of New York because that's a whole different beast sure. on its own. So I think New York really fitted the expectation of my expectation of U.S. Tall buildings, concrete yeah. forest, busy, hustle and bustle. Everyone's hustling. Um, but m- my misconception comes about when i know more about us sure when i see the other parts of us i'm like wow there's so much land Mm -hmm. there's so big houses you know like you have to drive everywhere for example yeah those are definitely something that was an eye-opener for me i'm like so okay because the only two cities i've lived in in the us are new york and san francisco which Mm -hmm. i'm living now so uh, certainly you know that image of big cities associated with us you know me moving here so
1: what was your hot take like your first take on new jersey when you when you made your first commute from the city uh when i
0: first yeah i remember i i told myself i will not move out here because (laughs) moving out there requires me to buy a car and at that moment i it was already hard enough to find a job yeah i am already in debt you know trying to pay my rent on manhattan which it was rent control, so it wasn't too bad. It was like seven hundred fifty dollars, I believe, uh, if I can remember correctly. So it wasn't too bad on Manhattan, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I, and I, th- I believe, yeah, it wasn't winter. It was, it was April, yeah. But still, it was quite a track. I was like, you know what? I'll do a two-hour one-way commute every day rather than having to buy a car because then i'll figure it out after six months and i did because six months later i got promoted go full-time right? i went to germany and they paid for my whole relocation to germany and it was an amazing experience
1: what is you know you mentioned throughout your exercise journey you started more heavy on the cardio you eventually got into weightlifting you've learned more over time what does your workout routine look like today
0: Today is my rest day actually, oh, um, nice. okay, but good. at the moment I am doing a um, program that I bought online uh, because I was doing my own program for a while. I I lost about what, 20 pounds in six months and then I saw body comp difference, but same weight okay. for the past four months. So I decided, I, you know what, I'm, I just want to get something different that I don't have to work on. So I paid a hundred bucks, got this program and... It's very high volume with okay. high intensity interval training at the end,
1: so okay,
0: okay. yeah, so for example, like Monday it was leg day. I had to do squats, deadlift, leg curls, hip thrust, and then followed by 10 sets of 10 reps of leg press. Ooh, so that killed me. I couldn't walk up the stairs after
1: yeah, I bet
0: and then um. High intensity interval training on the treadmill, 10 sets, one minute sprint, 20 seconds rest. I only managed to do six. I was kind of half disappointed with myself, but also half didn't because I was Oh, feeling... my legs
1: would have been toasted by the time <laughs> I got done with it. I was, I was, feeling,
0: I was yeah. feeling like puking the entire time, but <laughs> I was glad I did not. Um, but yeah, this is a four week like transformation program. I can't wait okay. to see. This is my first week. So I can't wait to see. We're just getting started. Yeah, we're just getting started because my birthday is coming up early next month. So I'm like, you know what? It's a good birthday present for me. You know, as people always say, you are the best investment you could have, right? So I'm going to say I am the best birthday present that I could have or like a healthy body is the best birthday present I could have for myself. So
1: I love that. That's amazing. All right, I got two final questions. Yeah, bring the it on. The first one is if somebody made it to this far in the conversation and we're both just kind of reflecting back on everything that we shared throughout, if they could only have one takeaway, like if there's just one thing you really want people to remember when they think back about this episode, what would that be?
0: Oh, we talked so much. I we know. talked about everything. Okay. We could
1: have kept going too. We
0: could have kept going too. Yes, we'll save that for episode two. Yes. I'm... One big takeaway. Can I have a one and a half?
1: Perfect. It's like, I appreciate you asking permission.
0: Listen to your body, but also get educated. Like just go out there and listen. There's so much information out there, but once you listen enough, once you learn enough, you will be able to filter out what are the clickbaits and what are the real information? Because you will see some form of consistency in the real truthful information and knowledge. And once you know your body, learn your body well, with that information, one and one together, you are unbeatable, you are invincible because you got the knowledge, you know your body, there's nothing that's stopping you now, right? Whatever you want to achieve, you want to achieve You know, high uh, muscle so muscle mass, you want to go for fat loss, you want to go for longevity, you want to go for, you know, just healthy lifestyle, free of diseases, like nothing can stop you because you have all this knowledge and you know how your body works.
1: Amazing. So true. I feel like when I really boil down a lot of what I try to help people understand is learning how to listen to your body. Because Mm -hmm. I think we're, we, we don't know how to do that. And then that often shows up in the form of struggling with setting goals, or maybe once you achieve a certain very measurable goal, trying to come up with what, well, where do I take this next? What should that next step be? So I really resonate with what you just said. too. Can
0: I, can I make a a confession?
1: Yeah. You know,
0: like I've, between Michael, my my CEO, and myself, we've done for more than like 50 podcasts in the past six months now. And every time I get on a podcast, I'm always nervous when they have impromptu questions because I'm, because everything is recorded right now, even though, you know, we mm-hmm. can't edit it and all that, but yeah. it's it's like, what if I don't have the right answer? What if I don't know what to say? What if I say something dumb, you know? But it works out every 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 time. And yeah, I, I, I think that was it. The little fear in me that's always they always going to be there but it keeps me on my toes it keeps me thinking
1: well i didn't hear you hesitate once I K- mean, ketone I
0: iq have might have helped say, yeah ketone iq Maybe might, might have helped
1: so there's our plug for ketone iq and my yeah. very last question was going to be one if anybody's interested in learning more about HVMN, connecting with you give us all the plugs how can we stay in touch and obviously we'll drop all this information into the show notes as well
0: Absolutely, we have our website www uh, also hvmn on all the social medias, Twitter, Instagram, and myself. Uh, it's Lat Mansor, so L A T T M A N S O R. Uh, Instagram and Twitter. I'm yeah, happy to answer any questions you guys have on YouTube as well. Um, you know, if you guys have any comments, usually we do go in and try and answer those those questions as well, because I think recently there was one person just very quick sort of statement. It's like, oh, ketones are not efficient. Um, It increases mitochondrial uncoupling. And that was it. And I went in there and really, and like, you responded. You know, really responded and gave him all the information he needs on what actually is mitochondrial uncoupling and all that. But we can leave that on like the second episode.
1: That'll have to be episode number two. And please keep us posted in the revival of the HVMN podcast, because we definitely, you know, that, that could be perfect timing for episode number two, once that relaunches. So I'm excited for all of what's to come for you guys. Maybe then you
0: can come on as well and talk about your experience. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I would love to pick your brains on hands-on experiences, you know, as a trainer, as a nutritionist, like what do you see in clients? Because what we know You know, from the books and from the papers is very different from when you are experiencing and and you are observing someone actually going through that transformation.
1: Yeah, it's well, I'd love to be able to contribute to that. So we are going to make it happen. But again, thank happen. you so much. This has been such an incredible conversation. I appreciate everything that you shared today. I really also want to acknowledge you for weaving in your personal story and and using yourself in so many of these examples. Because again, like we said, right out of the gate, we're two human beings here. And it's I I really, truly believe that that's one of the best parts about having a platform like this and being able to just turn the microphone on and talk and use these real life situations and examples for people to navigate what they could potentially try in their own lives and. That said, if you are listening to this and you felt that it helped you in any way, the best thing you can do for us is to share the message, send the link to this episode, whether you're listening on Apple, Spotify, Anchor, wherever you tune in for your podcast, share it with somebody, send me some feedback, let me know how you liked it. You guys can reach out to me via Instagram at any time about any questions that you have or if you want to get connected with Lat. I'd be happy to send you his way. And my handle is at the Krista Huber. And for the podcast, it's at the Pod. And once again, another amazing conversation. And we will catch you guys on the next episode. Thanks, Lat.
0: Thank you.